Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. And Bolsey came into town and he called me in the office and he says, uh, what do you think you're doing wrong? And I started to talk and then he goes, you know what? I don't want to hear any of it. Nobody wants to hear any of it. Nobody wants to hear what you're doing wrong. I don't care. You're not going to double A. You're not going, you're not getting sent down. You're not getting released. You're going to stay here and figure it out. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's From Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today's episode, we're talking to former all-star right-hander Ryan Dempster about his 16-year big league career, as entertaining a guy as we have had on this show. There's a lot to like in this one. Him hardballing the Rangers as an 18-year-old high school draftee, then getting traded just a year into his pro career to the rebuilding Marlins. Coming up with a boatload of talent in that Marlins organization, you think about the 1998 Marlins as kind of a letdown after that World Series team, then listen to Ryan talk about all the talent they had on that roster. Then we'll talk about him learning how to pitch from Greg Maddox as he rehabbed his elbow in Chicago, and we'll talk about one of the most unlikely perfect all-star innings of all time. Great show. Listen all the way through because he's got some great rapid-fire answers. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and go check out past interviews. If you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. It is honestly the best time of the year for baseball. Big leagues and minor league baseball going. The prospect hot sheet is back. Uh, college baseball, we're getting deep into conference play. Going to have the uh, you know regionals soon. And BA is covering it all on the site, main pod, and feed with great stuff from the other pods, future projection, and the 90th percentile. Let's get to Ryan Dempster. Okay, joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, he was a third-round pick of the Texas Rangers in the 1995 draft, former big league all-star right-hander Ryan Dempster. Ryan, thank you so much for joining for Phenom to the Farm. Hey, thanks for having me. This is great. Of course. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Before we, we dive in, you, you're wearing a lot of hats right now. Tell the folks where they can catch you from media work to stand-up comedy. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of everywhere. I try to, I try to uh, if you you know, follow me on Twitter or Instagram, usually what I'm up to, but, um, uh, Dempster 46 on Twitter and Dempster 46, 46 on Instagram. But, uh, I'm calling games this year for the Cubs starting in May. So I do about 45, 50 games, um, some two man in the booth, some three man in the booth. Uh, and then also do some pre and post for marquee sports network, as well as hosting my off the mound show. Um, do those uh we we did them just recently from festivals down in arizona and florida and we're gonna use some live shows from gallagher way and then i try to mix in some stand-up around the city uh you know whenever i can whether it's a laugh factory comedy bar but you know other zanies anything i can get some time in to go up and do that so um and and then in my real job i'm raising four kids so um you know it's it's a there's a lot going on there yeah i, I definitely wearing a lot of different hats can you do you think you are busier now than you were when you were a professional athlete like in season? Yeah, different different busy. I not as busy, no, cuz I do get days off, but different busy like you know, it's a, it's a lot more kind of uh 
organized chaos, I guess, you know, like, I'm, you know, like I said, I could call three games in a row and then the next night I'm, you know, at Laugh Factory doing a set or something, or, you know, I'm, I'm watching little league games and going to volleyball games. And then, you know, but when you're playing, you're just in it. It's every day. It's the routine. Um, it seemed a lot calmer, I think, than what it feels like right now. Um, when you got four kids and one on the way, it's, uh, it's oh, busy. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, in July. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I always say I'm a glorified Uber driver that just gets a crappy rating because I won't put a DVD player in the car, you know? <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's throw it on back to the the late '80s and early '90s back in Canada. Uh, when did you first realize that you had a future at the next level of baseball, whether that be professional ball or college ball? Uh, truly, did I realize or did I think? I thought when I was four, I was going to be a major league baseball player. <laughs> were, the, uh, were the scouts there, or was that just four. you? No, that usually there was just at four. There was just a lot of. Uh, over uh, overserved parents at the uh at the slow pitch softball games so um no i would say probably when i was like 15 years old was like all right if things keep going in this direction i i got a shot and i was lucky to kind of catch on with a team um in the city that was playing a lot of games we traveled a lot we went down to washington state and played in you know everett tacoma bellingham anacortes wenatchee you know, all these different places all over the place that we, we got a lot of exposure and we got a lot of comp good competition against good players. And um, yeah. And, and then that's kind of where the doors started opening up. And then once I played for team BC and team Canada, that's when the doors really started to open and realize that at the very least, I was going to hopefully be able to go play D1 college baseball somewhere. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Very generic. Hey, this guy's from Canada question, but did you, did you play any hockey getting, getting <laughs> up into, into high school? I did. I played one year of organized hockey. I, I played very little hockey, but I had two younger brothers. And so my mom, you know, she was, uh, the, the ice rink was, it was a drive. It was like a 30 minute drive from our house out to the ice rink. And my mom was going practice home, practice home, practice home. Like, you know, the hockey times are 5 a.m. and all this. And so she just was like, listen, you guys can play hockey and nothing else, or you can play every other sport and no hockey. And me and my brothers were like, let's just, I'm, I skate, I couldn't skate backwards anyway. So it was like, <laughs> it was this dying dream. As much as I, I love watching Howie Meeker on, you know, Hockey Night in Canada or watching Canucks games, it, it, was, uh, it was more of a fan from the outside than desire to be a hockey player. So as you got into high school, then how did you get a sense of what your, your draft stock was like? Baseball America was around back then, but there weren't 40 zillion top prospect Instagram accounts and no, you know, no TV shows around, around prospects in the draft and stuff like that. So how did you kind of begin to, to put together, I might go here when you got into your senior year? Yeah, I think it just started like the reality was, was it just started, um, you know, the, the national champion or, you know, our provincial championships, um, when I was take that back, 
I'm, I'm with the North Shore Twins and, and I met Don Sherry and Don was a bird dog for the New York or for the New York for the um, Texas Rangers. And so that was like kind of like the first one. And then there was um, Jim Chapman, who was a scout for um, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And it just kind of started to, you, you know, there would be occasional scouts around there. And then I played for Team BC and uh, we actually won the gold medal um, that year. And then uh, in um, Brandon, Manitoba, sorry, in, uh, in Ottawa, and then um, made Team Canada that year as well as a 16 year old. And, you know, like we're playing against Team USA and on Team USA was... Uh, like say for example, if you go around the roster, it was like Paul Canero co at first base. There was, I believe, Chad Green was the center fielder. You had Mark Johnson, who was the catcher. You know, who played with the White Sox, is now a coach with the Cubs in the minor leagues. Um, Kelly Dransfeld was a shortstop, only because Alex Rodriguez got hit with a ball in the face and was out for those championships. Otherwise, he would have been the shortstop. Like it was loaded. Not the first time A Rod's gotten hit by a ball, my friend. <laughs> no, a few times I think it's happened. Um, yeah, so it was a really good competition and was able to pitch against those guys. And then it was like, okay, now, you know, everything's trending in the right direction, you know, what I wanted to accomplish. And then I got home that, you know, that summer after all that, and I was getting letters from all these D1 schools and, you know, opportunities for scholarships, even at that age, you know, interest anyways. So, um, yeah, we didn't really have all that kind of stuff. Like, talking about baseball America, I remember like getting the magazine and like see your name in like the top 10. It was like the coolest thing ever. You know, that, that was Instagram before there was Instagram, you know? Yeah. You know, B, yeah. yeah, BA has been doing it for a long time. So with, out of curious, you didn't, obviously you didn't go to college, but when you're, you're fielding those, those college offers and stuff, like I think for American kids, like I, I grew up in Texas, like my whole idea of college is like uh, the football teams and stuff like that. Like that's how I built college sports. How did you build relationships with college and try to figure out where you were going to go? Yeah, I think to be really honest, I, I didn't really have much aspirations to go play college baseball. Um, and not, not for the, like, I was a scholastic kid. I, you know, I got good grades. I made the honor roll and things like that, but I was so driven to be a major league baseball player that it wasn't really like, Oh, I, you know, I got to go here. Um, that being said, you know, being recruited like that, I wanted to be honest with the, the coaches. Um, and I didn't want to waste anybody's time. Like probably my three that I was most interested in were Arizona state, um, Washington State and Notre Dame and when I went on my recruiting trip to Notre Dame I just really fell in love with Coach Maneri and and um, uh, Brian O'Connor was the the pitching coach at the time who's now at uh, Virginia and Maneri obviously has gone on to have a Hall of Fame career uh, both in Notre Dame and then LSU um, just great man and I just really liked everything they had to say and I liked you know the campus was beautiful and it was it was close to home if I didn't sign. And, and I let him know that. And I, you know, I was lucky enough and I'll never forget this. I was sitting in my, my living room of my high school home and um, my dad, you know, I'm getting ready to sign a, a contract to play baseball. And he says, so let me get this straight. You, your mom never went to college. I never went to college. Your grandparents never went to college. And now you're going to turn down a five-year scholarship to go play baseball. And <laughs> he goes, well, what if baseball doesn't work out? And I just looked him right in the eye and I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and he was like, all right, that's all he needed to see. That, that's, it was like his kids driven to do that. And 
you know, I, I was commit. I would, I was more committed than most 16 year olds, 17 year olds and 18 year olds at any level, just from what I was having to do travel wise. So it was never a question of commitment for him. So he was totally behind me. My parents were behind me. With when it comes to college, like Coach Maneri, Coach O'Connor having to recruit you, sell you on Notre Dame, did the Rangers have to do that much when they popped you in the third round? What What were the discussions with with the team like, um, or any of the teams talking to you, or did you just make it pretty clear, like, no, you give me a contract, I'm going. No, no, I I played hardball a little bit, you know. Uh, my scout Tim Hallgren would come up, and you know, it, it's like the uh, the meeting in person they want to have that right, and I just. So I, I grew up in this small little town outside of Vancouver, British Columbia. Tim lives down in Washington state. So he's got to drive across the border up to Vancouver. Then he's got to go across the bridge from downtown Vancouver into West Vancouver. And then he's got to drive along the ocean a little while until he gets to Horseshoe Bay. And then he's got to get on a ferry, that 40 minute ferry ride. It's not an Island, but there's no roads that go there. So then he's got to take the ferry over there and then he's got to drive up to my house and then he's got to give me a contract offer. And I was like, Tim, that's a lot of effort for something that I'm just going to say no to the first contract offer you give me. So, well, Ryan, I think we got a really fair deal here. I think we got a good, good contract offer. And I, he'd made that whole trip up. He put it in front of me and I just said, no. And I just like, did you not, did you not have an advisor? Uh, No, I, I, I had um, my agent for my career, Craig Landis, um, who at the time was with rich cats and Landis. And then he eventually went on his own to be the Landis baseball group. But um, Craig, was kind enough to send me comps. Like here's what everybody signed for over the last year. And so I just wanted fair with some, you know, I understand how the process worked and it's like, it's like fair with a little bit of inflation, right? Like every year it kind of just goes up a little bit. I had a lot of leverage at a full ride in Notre Dame. I was a good healthy kid. My arm was healthy and I just pitched really well in my senior year. So, um, and I, I felt like I was just untapping the potential. Um, looking back, I would have held out a little longer because we didn't sign our second round pick and I could have got some of his cheese, but I never got any of that. Did you, how much did you know about what minor league baseball is like before you left? None. I, I really didn't. I, I, I shouldn't say none, but like very, very limited. Like we had a, a couple guys that played, um, you know, on, on where I was playing with the North shore twins and the Wally chiefs, like who'd gone off and played and kind of came back and talked a little bit about it. But, not a whole lot. I just knew that the bus rides were going to be long. Um, and I just knew that it was an opportunity. And, you know, I went to Port Charlotte, Florida to the Gulf Coast League. And, you know, a couple of days later, rooming with four guys in a two bedroom house and you get 65 guys in camp. Chino, Chino Catahia is my, my manager. And, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was just, it was just the opportunity. Just that I didn't, I didn't really care. Like, there's a, there's a lot to be made and I get it about kind of how the minor leagues are now. And, and I think, you know, I mentioned inflation earlier. It makes sense that guys should make more money than they did when I played. And I think they do, you know, and housing and things like that, especially like as I've learned about the game from the other side, front office side and stuff like that, but it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be a daunting task. You know, signing bonuses are a lot of money. Now guys are, guys are, already broken off before they get into the big leagues. So it should be, you know, well, I have to do this and I have to give up all this. Well, yeah. I mean, you're chasing a dream. There's 750 people in the world that do it. It's not like, you know, you're going to get a job at the lumber yard. No offense to anybody who works at the lumber yard. I'm just saying, it's like, this is like a dream that not very many people in the world do. There's 
there's more brain surgeons than there is, you know, major league baseball players. They send you out to low A for your first, first full season. So that you kind of, yeah. you skip short season, a pretty, pretty aggressive assignment. You're 19 years old. You threw 170 innings with three complete games. I, yeah. that, that would be, that would be definitely, definitely be leading the big leagues uh, in, in a lot of years now with minor league development, it's development over winning essentially. Yeah. Were you, what were you working on each time out that year? And like, is throwing a lot of innings part of the development? Was it part of the development back then? Like you need to build up and be able to throw all these innings or does it just come with success? Does it just come with, you get through the sixth fine, you might as well go out for the seventh. I think, I think, well, there was always this number. I think it was 500 was like the innings. Like you wanted to get to get 500 minor league innings. You know, that was your ultimate goal. You felt like they would be seasoned. Um, yeah. I, I just thought it's like, that's just what you're supposed to do. And that was kind of like the target is to just go out there and make every start and go deep into ball games. And, uh, you know, I have a different philosophy on everything that goes on. I understand what they're doing, but we're devolving starting pitchers. You know, we're, we're not letting them go longer when you're taking like these young kids who are like the prime of their life physically we should be figuring out ways to push them rather than to rein them back. Cause we think we're preventing injuries, but the reality is it doesn't matter. Like some guys are just more susceptible to injuries. Some guys are going to get hurt. You look what we've done since pitch counts. It hasn't prevented injuries. They're just as much, if not more, because now we worry about throwing harder and the human arm is not meant to go overhand as much as, as it does. Um, so it was just like, there was, there was never talk of that. Like, and you threw 117 pitches that game. All right, let's go out and throw again in five days and build off that. And what did you learn from that? And what did you develop? And how how much better are you at throwing first pitch strikes? How much how much tighter is your breaking ball? What's the spin on your breaking ball like? Um, is that changeup coming along? How do we develop while at the same time learning to compete? Right? Because there's this fine line. Like at the end of the day. It's still about somebody that's 60 feet, six inches away from you. And that's all that matters in competition. So like I can have all the scouting reports, all the, all these things, all these tools, it's still the core of it is this heart and that heart and this mind and that mind and competing against each other is really what it comes down to those days when you just, nothing's working. Okay. Throw it all out the door and just compete. And I think that's probably what I learned the most in the minor leagues is, you know, Hey, how do you, how do you win with your B stuff? No. How do you win with your C stuff? And sometimes how do you go out there with your D stuff and make it, you know, through three or four or five innings, you know, how can you do that <clears throat> rather than it just being so scripted? This is what's going to happen today. You know, Clayton Kershaw is going to have a perfect game throw 80 pitches and we're going to take him out because that's what the script says. Man, what about a magical moment happening or something you know, really special happening. And for these young guys in the minor leagues, you know, why can't we have the next Max Scherzer? You know, why do we, why does it gotta be this guy goes four and then the next guy goes four when they're, when they're that physically gifted. I don't know. Mm -hmm. that's, it. that's just my opinion. What are the other dynamics that kind of works against, um, that is why we've seen a reduction in starter innings is the, the concept of like third time around the order, you know, opponent batting average being higher and stuff like that. When you, especially when you got into like, the big, like when you got to the Cubs, things are clicking. You, you know, your stuff, you're, you know, you're a bona fide, you know, quality major league pitcher. 
were you, did you have strategies for different times around the order, especially when it got deep in the game? Like, Hey, Pujols and Edmonds have seen me a, you know, a few times now I've got to bring something different to the table. Was that, did you, did you have conscious game plans for the, for the different trips around the order, allowing you to go deeper? Yeah, for sure. You had to, you know, and I think that was part of it. That was part of the strategy. And that's the difference now is it's kitchen sink from the first pitch. It's like, here's my fastball, my curveball, my cutter, my slider, my changeup, all of them. You got them all. So no wonder they can't get guys out the third time through the lineup. You know, what changed my life and changed my career, you know, from a baseball perspective was being a teammate with Greg Maddox in 2004. I was fresh off of Tommy John. I had good years. I made an all-star team before that. Threw a lot of innings, struck a lot of guys out. But I, I didn't really know how to pitch yet. And I was recovering from Tommy John, and I was just like, Greg, Greg signs with the Cubs. I sign with the Cubs. I'm just going to sit on the bench next to this guy and get a thesis in pitching. And it worked. I mean, you look at my numbers as a Cub of 0.75 of a run lower in my ERA than my career, just because he just taught me that much. And it was like, we get so caught up in all these scouting reports and what it says to throw to somebody 2-0 or 1-0, or this is what they hit, or their, their bat pip is this. So we want to throw a pitch that has this shape, which, which is great. We don't know anything from that on a macro level, all of that works, right? Over 162, over this many appearances, it all works. It all computes. That's, that's why there are stats and that's why the data is there because it happens. But on a micro level, everything's kind of circumstantial to that day. What if you're facing a team and they fly in? Like, like for example, Kyle Hendricks threw a, a complete game against the Cardinals a couple years ago, an 82 pitch complete game. A Maddox. Yeah. Everybody talked about it. They're like, man, this, this dude was carving him up. No, he wasn't. Go look at the tape. Fastball down the middle, 86 miles an hour pop-up. Fastball again. He just said... He, he went through, I think, he, I want to say the first couple innings, he barely threw anything other than fastballs. And Kyle looked at the changeup. The Cardinals were playing in Washington, D.C. They had a rain delay. They had a late start. They get in super late to Chicago. Now they come to the field, and they're a little tired. And now all of a sudden, he just took advantage of that. And I think that sometimes, you know, when you're facing guys, it's like, if I throw a fastball down and away, and I, and I crisp it right where I want it, what's wrong with another pitch in the same spot? Because – that's why I'm throwing that pitch there, right? Because that's money. That's where I can get him out. Why throw him something else? Why throw a breaking ball? Two buddy, two out, nobody on. And I got a guy, oh, two. I'm going to try and paint a heater right here. And if I miss, I'm going to miss to the right spot. I know where my miss is. I don't want to leak it back over the plate for a solo homer. But, like, why do I throw that wipeout slider? Now, all of a sudden, I got to face him his second time through the lineup. And I got runners on first and second and one out. And he's seen my wipeout, my best slider of the day. Dude, I don't have any more tools in the toolbox. I showed them to you all early on. So, you know, learning that and understanding that was a huge difference for me. And, and setting guys up. Through, like, I learned this one from Greg. And I actually was a story through DeRose. This is a great story. So, Greg's pitching against the Los Angeles Dodgers in Vero Beach. Mark DeRose is playing third base in the spring training game. And Sean Green comes up to the plate. And there's two out, nobody on. And Maddox gets the ball back. I think it was after a strikeout or an out or whatever. And he looks at D-Row and he says, hey, D-Row, watch this. And Sean Green hits a 480-foot home run. And D-Row's at third base. Like, what is going on here? What is this? 
So they get done the inning and he comes in, he goes, doggy, what are you doing? He goes, he's going to look for that pitch all year and I'm never going to throw it to him again. Like that's brilliant. People wonder why he won 300. He is setting guys up in spring training for the season. And I ended up doing that in a spring training game to Randy Wynn and he had a, he had a monster Homer and guess what? He didn't get any hits. So, you know, it kind of works. Like there's, there's a method to the madness, you know, sometimes I think thinking for yourself is a really good thing. That is, man, that is everything you hope to hear about Greg Maddox. Yeah, right? Isn't that so? That is just, to me, just like so good, you know, and that's what it is. It's a chess match out there. You know, we do it in an analytical form now. You know, we don't want anybody to remember anything. That's why they got wristbands on and things in their hats and back pockets to tell them where to stand and where to be. So we want to make it easier and we want to make it easier for them. It's supposed to be hard. It's the big leagues, not another... Can't go, there's not a higher level. There's not another one somewhere. I mean, that Otani should go play on, you know, he should be in a different league somewhere where they allow players to play from both sides. Cause what that dude's doing is ridiculous, but it should be hard. Um, but you know, times change. It just evolves. And, and that's part of it. Um, so you're, you're learning how to, how to pitch and you're, you're putting up good results in low A, you know, three, three ERA and low A. Um, at your first stop, you eventually get, you get traded mid season, which is a whole other thing, but you're, you're learning. So through that, you're learning the business of baseball and you're, you're learning how to be an adult away from home. What are you 19 years old in the Sally league, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away from home. What do you, what are you living like? Like what is, what is growing up in, in 1996 in Charleston, South Carolina, like for a 19 year old baseball player? Yeah, I'm living in uh, in Hideaway Bay, um, in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, across the bridge, driving my 1995 Forest Green tan top convertible Mustang. Oh. I'm, ro- I'm rooming with Chris Briones, Sean Gallagher, and Mark Drager, and uh, and uh, just going through it. And and then you say get you know, and then I I'm not I'm gonna be with these guys forever, right? Like these are my guys. I'm. Texas Ranger. I got the vanity thing around the outside of the license plate. I got all the t-shirts for the family. I probably have a necklace somewhere that says Rangers on it. Like that's what, and all of a sudden, boom, I get traded. So you were attached to the organization. You were emotionally attached to that organization. Well, and I think most guys were then. I think that's the general feeling was, you know, and for me, like, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm literally 3000 miles away from home. So like they are my family and they're, they're my lifeline. Right. So, and I, I can't like FaceTime anybody. I'm not like my, my cell phone coverage was a little light. Like it was just, I don't even think I had a cell phone then, but it was just, it was just different. And, and so then all of a sudden you get traded and it broke my heart, you know, like not only that four days earlier, I broke my face. I got hit with a line drive in batting practice, broke four bones in my face, broke my nose, shattered all my teeth. Um, you know, and here I, I'm looking like Rocky Dennis in the mask. I mean, my face was mangled up and, and I'm like, you know, I get called in the office and Gary Allenson's like, uh, Hey, slick, sorry, we, we traded you. And I'm like, what, what is, I'm bawling my eyes out. I go to Brad Armsburg was my pitching coach. I go to his hotel room. We're in Columbia, South Carolina. We're playing the Mets a ball team. And I'm like, I'm crying. He's like, temper, what's wrong, buddy? well, come here. What's wrong? And I'm like, I got traded. And he starts giggling. And I'm like, why are you laughing? He goes, I thought somebody died. (laughs) 
you're fine. This is great. This is great. Somebody wants you so bad. They traded a big league pitcher for you. Like, this is good, you know? And so he kind of helped me really flip that. And then I went to King County, drove, got in a car, drove. I was on like horse tranquilizers, you know, because my pain was so much, my face. And like, I'm trying to get the swelling out. I show up to the clubhouse in King County Cougars clubhouse. My whole eyeball is red because the blood vessels all got popped. So it looked like I had one eye. And they're like, we traded John Burkett for this dude. They're like, what is up? And, uh, and, and yeah, and then just became acclimated there and um, met, some, met some good people there and then kind of just continued down the road and just actually had a good little stint in Kane County, pitched well. Um, and then, uh, and then, you know, home that winter and then off to spring training the next year with the Marlins. I'm curious going to, I was just looking through your minor league numbers. Everything is, is pretty stellar for the most part. Your, your time in low a, uh, your 1998 season, your second season in the Marlins or second full season, in the Marlins organization, the season that gets you to the big leagues, your, your age 20 season, 97, you have a four nine ERA in the, in the Florida state league, which is typically a good league to pitch in. What? It's kind of an it stands out in your minor league numbers. What about that year? What did you pick up from a year where you probably at least results wise had a lot of games that didn't go your way, or at least how you're wanting? What from that year served as this catalyst that jumps you into the big leagues the next year? John Bowles. John Bowles was our minor league field coordinator. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, John Bowles is John's a, a man short in stature but gigantic and presence and uh he he was our minor league coordinator and you know when you look at those numbers i'm really proud of that that year probably as proud of that year as i am any year because if you did a deep dive in that and you look at what my numbers were about the halfway point of that season i I was a guy like those are numbers you release guys with you definitely send them down um i think i was at the time two and nine or two and seven or something like that with a seven and a half, seven, nine ERA, something like that big. I just given up back-to-back starts of 10 runs each. I think it was 10 and 10 or nine and 10. It was really awful. Daytona and Kissimmee and Bolsey came into town and he called me in the office and he says, uh, what do you think you're doing wrong? And I started to talk and then he goes, you know what? I don't want to hear any of it. Nobody wants to hear any of it. Nobody wants to hear what you're doing wrong. I don't care. You're not going to double A. You're not going, you're not getting sent down. You're not getting released. You're going to stay here and figure it out. And I was like, okay. And I just was listening. He's like, you need to throw your fastball for strikes and better strikes. You can't just throw it down the middle. These boys can hit here now and they're going to continue to hit as you go up. But you need to throw strikes. You need to get ahead. And you need to throw your breaking ball in the zone for a strike. If you throw in the strike zone, then they will swing at the ones that you keep throwing in the dirt. Because I was just getting behind everybody. It was like, throw a good breaking ball, but it's oh oh, and then it's one oh, and then you know I miss and then it's two oh and then heater and it's roped in the gap or something. And it just really stuck with me. And then I, I dealt in the second half after that, after he came in, you know, like to the point where I was really questioning for the first time ever, like, am I gonna am I gonna not make it to the big leagues? Like I'm pretty terrible right now. Um and then I just kind of I so I had that you know really really strong like dominant dominant second half finished the year with a CG on the last start of the year on the last game of the year against Port St. Lucie. And I get home that 
off season and I get a phone call that says we want you to come to big league camp. And I'm like, I wasn't, I wasn't able now byproduct of the Marlins trading everybody away was that I was going to ask when you're at home in the off season and you're watching sports center or whatever, and it's like, Oh, they traded that guy. Oh, they traded that guy. Oh, they're going to be the worst team to ever come off winning a world series. There's a lot of opportunity here. Is that, does that jump to your mind? Like, were you already looking to the big league roster? No, because of my previous year. Like I was just so elated that uh, honestly, the, the only thing going through my head was hopefully I won't be back in Brevard County next year. You know, like, like they know where that green Mustang has been driving around. I've been dodging a few speeding tickets there. Like I didn't <laughs> want to go back there. Um, I got warrants. Yeah. There's a, we, we, you know, they, they didn't call them warrants back then. There was a different <laughs> saying, I won't get into it all. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I, I, I just was really just hoping to be able to go to double A. And so then all of a sudden I get a call and I'm going to big league camp, like Jim Leland's going to be managing. And like, that was that was that was nerve wracking, exciting, like so exciting. Yet, like I was terrified, right? Like I could barely get a ball hitters out the year before. And now I'm going to go to big league camp. So it was uh, it was it was pretty crazy. Cigarette king Jim Leland. Oh, just puffing on heaters. I didn't know what those little I, these little like black marks all over the floor of the bathroom. <laughs> I didn't know what they were, but that's where he put all his cigarettes out. So I figured that out later. First ballot smoking in the dugout Hall of Fame, Jim Leland. Yeah, best. Best one of the best managers I ever had, man. Yeah. So, I mean, with that, Jim Leland becomes your manager probably a lot, a lot sooner than you thought uh, in that that '98 year. Walk me through the first call. Yeah, well, the crazy part was so now I go to big league camp, right? And I still remember my first game of fetch that I played. I would call it catch, but my poor catch partner Mike Villano, I don't know how many times he ran back. I'll go get it. I got it. You know, he's. I think he thought I had the yips, which I was so terrified. You know, like being on a, on a ball field with these superstars, but, um, which I, I thought would happen, but maybe when I was ready, not like before I was ready for it. So, um, three days before minor league camp starts, Jim Leland calls me in the office and tells me that I, I'm not going to make the team that I'm going to be sent out of big league camp, you know? And I was like, yeah, I figured, yeah, I was like, okay, <laughs> but, um, skip uh, minor league camp is start for three days. What do I do? He goes, I'd go to the beach. And I was like, okay. And I got this big chunk of meal money. Bill Beck Boomer gave us uh, all our meal money that, that day, that morning. I was like, do I have to give my meal money back? He goes, no, nah, go to the track. And so I did both, you know, which was great. Um, but then, yeah, so now I go to double A and Portland, Maine. Um, and and I'm, I pitched good, right? Like kind of Eastern League was kind of a hitter's league. There was some ballparks that were a little bit smaller. Portland itself, you know, kind of tended to that, but, um, and I, you know, I didn't put up great numbers, but I, I was pitching good. I was, you know, throwing deeper into games and I was doing, and then all of a sudden I just got, I got like on like a three, three or four start run out of my six starts in double a, it was like, I just pitched really well a few starts in a row. And then I was walking to the ballpark in Binghamton, New York, making my way to the field, going to pitch against the Binghamton Mets. And I walk in and my name's whited out on the card and nobody had said anything to me, you know, um, my agent hadn't called the team and told them because I had six good starts that I should be in the big leagues, you know, sorry. That was a small little jab at some of the ones going on today, but anyways, <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, what the heck? And they said, you're uh, you're going somewhere, but we don't know where yet. So I was thinking in my head, like they didn't know where, if I was going to join the AAA team on the road. And then, 
it's kind of like dragging on and I'm not, and nobody's saying anything to me. And then now I had to do the chart. So they said, just go do the chart up in the stands. So I'm doing the chart. I'm sitting next to Britt Burns. Britt Burns was our minor league pitching coordinator, former rookie of the year with the Chicago White Sox. And I said, I was going to get some of the concession stand. I said, Hey Britt, do you want anything? And he said, yeah, I'll take a three quarter ton Chevy pickup. If you, you know, got a little extra cash floating around now. And I was like, what? And he just looks at me and he says, congratulations. You're going to the big leagues. And I'm like, what? Sick! I'm rolling big leagues. I'm gonna go get my ass kicked. Let's go. So, yeah. did you have to finish the chart, or did you get to like? Did you get to? Leave? I think I just stopped finishing the chart. Yeah, it was just like I think I just made it up later. I, I, I like I remember that. I like I was so distracted. I'd like figure out batters later. I'm like, if this kid doesn't make it to the big leagues because my chart was messed up, and, you know, I was so excited. Got in the clubhouse, called my parents you know, my mom and dad right away. So yeah, it was, it was amazing. You've been on teams that were in, were in first place before you've been on world series team. You come up with a bottom of the barrel last place team. Is it better in your opinion to come up on a team where, you know, it, the Marlins at that point, they're playing with house money. They've, they won that title last year. They're rebuilding, whatever. Is it better to come up in that situation or better to, you know, for for any rookies who came up on on your, you know, more top tier like Red Sox teams or something like that. What what is the more ideal situation to grow as a big leaguer? Well, I, I think for us it was the, it was very ideal. Um, and the reason I say that is like from a developmental standpoint, like we just got to play. Like I, especially come ninety nine, like nineteen ninety eight, Jim was still managing. He was. He was upset and he should be upset. He just won a world series and now they trade away all his players and give him a bunch of a ball and double a pitchers with five ERAs, you know, like that's gotta be pretty frustrating. He went from having all-stars and hall of famers on his ball club, winning a world series to, you know, a bunch of guys that he had a tough time remembering some of our first names, I'm sure. So like it was, it wasn't fair to him and he handled it, you know, he handled it all really well, but um, you know, we're, we were a lot. And plus you're playing in South Florida and the media, at that time, it was pretty tame. You know, you're not coming up with the Yankees or the Phillies or LA or something like that. So it was like, I could pitch bad and five days later I'd pitch again, pitch good five days. Like there wasn't a lot. So development wise, and then in 1999, that really got that, but development wise in 1998, it just, it just got to like, you know, kind of be able to just play. And you look at like who we had on those rosters for rookies, like to put that many rookies on one team. Okay. You go around the, go around that team as you got Derek Lee at first base, you know, it was either him or Kevin Millar or Millar was playing left field, Luis Castillo, Alex Gonzalez, Mike Lowell, Cliff Floyd, Preston Wilson, Mark Kotze, Mike Redman, myself, Josh Penny, or uh, um, Brad Penny, AJ Burnett a, a year later, Beckett came up shortly after that. Um, Braden Looper, Antonio Altonsaker, 10 year, all 10 year careers out of one team with all of these rookies. Whereas you see a lot of teams, guys, a rookie will come up and then they'll fizz off. I think one of two reasons, one, it's hard to come up to a high pressure situation and play. And two, you just don't get to play every day. Like that's, that's like so important, you know, like sometimes when a guy's in spring training and he has a monster spring training, right. And he's a, he's a catcher and the other team's got to catch. Like say, for example, the Atlanta Braves, and they got Tyler Flowers or they got, you know, uh, Darnold, sorry, Travis Darnold, the catcher. And then you have Willem Contreras. Well, you're, why would you put him as your backup catcher? That makes no sense. You want him playing every day to develop and get better. 
people would be like, oh man, why is he in AAA? He's monster, he's got a good September monster spring. Well, it's just detrimental to his own career. So for us, it was actually beneficial being on a, on that team because on those teams, 98, 99, 2000, we just got to play. Just got to play baseball. Got to go to Atlanta every, you know, every so often play three games and learn how to really play baseball by watching them, you know, and then we just got to get better and better and then have all these guys who won, you know, World Series championships, whether it was with the Marlins in 03 or, you know, with the Red Sox in 04 or 2013, whatever it was, guys started to just develop. And, and we were really lucky to have that, you know, and we were given that in 98 and we were really, really given that in 1999. You mentioned that Braves team. That's like the height of, you know, they're winning the East every single year. That is, you know, your TBS Superstation All-Stars, Chipper, yeah. Andrew, that, that whole, that whole lineup that, kids in the South have worshiped for, you know, the last 20 years. How, how many runs through that lineup? How many, how many starts against them as you're growing as a big league, you're still 22, 23 years old before you're like, I know how to pick, I know how to pitch these guys. I know how to take it to these guys. I'm not just growing. I'm going to beat them today. Yeah. I would say probably, you know, three or four, you know, where, where I knew where now executing was the different story, you know, like, uh, you got to execute, but as far as knowing how to pitch those guys and seeing it, you know, and then you just had to, you knew I had to watch out for, it. you know, you knew Chipper was so smart. So he'd set you up and do different things. And some guys were one way, like Andrew, you know, he would chase that slider in the dirt, but if you hung it, he was going to hit a homer or a double in the gap. It was, it was, you know, there's a lot of risk reward with those guys um, and tons and tons of competition, just competing against them for so many years was, was a blast, you know, like, one of my favorite starts was the the end of the year in 1999. I threw eight eight shutout against some two hits. Uh, we ended up winning the game um, in extra innings in the tenth. I think Cliff Floyd either hit a homer or drove the run in. But um, you know, to throw in 1999 kind of my was my first full year. But I came up, you know, in May and was up there the rest of the year, and that was like a kind of a breakout year for me. But like that was that was pretty awesome, you know, and go up against. You know, that, that ball club, as good as they were to go out there and, and do that, you know, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I you know just learned a lot, learned a lot playing against those guys, the way to play the game, you know, the way Bobby managed and how he carried himself. And, and then just watch those pitchers. They were just – it was like the, the, there was times you just didn't want to ever get off the bench or move because they would do something special. When you say Chipper would set you up, we, we think a lot about that from like a pitcher's perspective. Like obviously like Maddox, Maddox setting Sean Green up for 162. How does that work from a hitter's perspective? How how would a would a hitter like that when you're facing off against against a brain like that? Yeah, whether whether it's being comfortable enough to um, take a pitch that's maybe right down the middle, right? Like I'm going to take a fastball right down the middle because I'm sitting all over that slider. And if you throw one of them in here, you know, and the grip, that's the difference too. A great players. Sure. Anybody can sit on a pitch. Great players don't miss them. So when they get them, they, they hit them, you know, like I play with Aramis Ramirez, Aramis runners in scoring position or like big moments, that first fastball, he would take a massive hack, like overswing sometimes and then just sit soft and wait for you to throw the breaking ball. It intimidate a lot of pitchers into throwing a breaking ball. And then as long as it was close around the zone, he'd have his hands back and he'd be able to drive it somewhere. And, you know, I think a lot of guys are good. That pools is very good at playing the mental game, the mental chess game. Some guys just sit dead red 
And that's, they adjust off that, you know, some guys were Vladimir Guerrero where it was like, I'm going to swing at everything you throw up here. So there's no like chess game. It was just a matter of like, honestly, I just got to execute something that bounces and he still might hit that, which he did in Montreal off me. I hit a slider that I threw that bounced in the left-handed batter's box and he pulled it for a base hit. So, I mean, you know, slide that into your analytical drawer. Like he was, he was the best. Like oh, there's there some awesome YouTube super cuts of Vladimir Guerrero swinging at balls out of the zone and making perfect contact. It's just yeah, incredible. There's a great, there's a great, um, uh, at bat, uh, he gets, he gets dusted by Scott Williamson with Cincinnati. He's the closer for the Reds and he dusts Vladimir Guerrero and the next pitch was a fastball win and Vladimir Guerrero went oppo where most left-handed hitters would pull. And like, he was never a guy to like style. Even if he had a massive home run, he was running hard out of the box. He let him know that one. That was like, he just was so talented in so many things he did, you know, and now his kid's doing it. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, you can watch the Vladimir Guerrero super cut of just throws from right field. Just, it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, so you, you mentioned you make it, you make an all-star team with the Marlins in 2000. You have a great year there. Um, your numbers slip a little bit. You're dealt to the Reds. Same, you know, same kind of numbers until TJ in August of 2003. How long was your elbow barking before TJ? Like, when did you finally decide, I need this MRI, I need to get this looked at? Yeah, it's, I felt it going into the 2003 season, working out. Um, you know, 2002 was a rough year, you know, kind of along the same lines. Like, we were just starting to get good as the – the Marlins were getting good, right? 2002, we started to play well. And all of a sudden it was like, if, you know, guys aren't going to sign deals that are extremely team friendly, then we're just going to get rid of you. Did they bring something to the table like that? Yeah. And it wasn't like a negotiation. It was like, here's a deal. You should take this. Otherwise, see ya. So, um, and I just thought maybe there'd be a little room. I'm like, I did this before when I was 18, Tim Hallgren. I, I pushed my weight around. Apparently I don't have that much. And, and so they traded me to Cincy and I just, I got off to a rough start there and I just battled and I battled some things. Um, and then in 2003, I was in the off season, I was, I was lifting some weights and I felt a little something in my elbow, but I wasn't throwing yet. So I didn't think anything of it kind of went away. And then I started to throw and I kind of had to back my throwing off a little bit. It was like the first time my elbow really ever really hurt my arm for the moment, for that matter. And, uh, and I was like, oh man, what's going on here? And so kind of like backed it off. And then I started throwing in and I was like, okay, it's fine. And then spring training, it was going, it was going good. You know, spring training, you're just easing in the season and just kind of going along. And then all of a sudden I started to feel it again. Um, but I didn't know what it was. At first we thought it was like a nerve issue. The Reds thought it was like a nerve issue. And so we did some cortisone blocks where they stick this needle like right up in my, you know, neck area um, with cortisone and marcaine and numb me up and you know put it in there and and it felt better and, it, and then it started to get worse again and then we did another one and then it felt better and then started to feel worse again and then i pitched against uh I pitched against the the braves i believe it was yeah the braves and uh kind of a weird outing i, I like you know i punched out like 10 or 12 in five innings but i also like gave up eight runs it was like i'd either strike somebody out or i'd give up a rocket somewhere and didn't know where the ball was going. And I went to go play golf the next day with, uh, with Kent Merker, Paul O'Neill and Paul's buddy at Mirfield country club, where they play the Memorial and Merck had been wanting to play the Memorial 
um, played uh, Muirfield for all season. And he's like, we're going there. He lives like in this little place just off the first hole there. And he's like, it's going to be great. It was great. You know, tournaments in May, it's going to be in great shape. We're going up there. It's August. We get to the drive range. And I try to hit a sandwich and I drop to my knees. It was just like the first wedge of the day on the range. And I'm like, Oh my God, my elbow is like, it's like it hurts so bad right now. And I, Merck always tells the story. He's on the range and, you know, he's been dying to play this. And we finally had an off day at work to be able to do this. And I'm like, Merck. And he turns around and, and I'm like, dude, my, my elbow, man. And he just looks at me and goes, stretch it. Just stretch it. We're playing. You're not you know? ruining this 18 for me. No. <laughs> and I didn't even get a full 18 and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't swing a club. And I went into the, to the doctor that day and then they did an MRI and it was like just shot. It was complete torn and doc kremchik did surgery a couple days later and uh yeah and the rest kind of like healed up nice and did a good job and yeah I, I wish my time in cincinnati i wish i was better when i was there i wish i performed better because i really enjoyed i enjoyed the town i enjoyed the people the fans um the guys i played with like, a great chance i got a chance to be teammates with ken griffey jr who i grew up watching play you know I try to tell him that's how old he is. That I, he grew up, you know, he was, he was playing when I was growing up and he goes, that's just cause I was in the big leagues at 18, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, we are, we were just talking about Vladimir Guerrero playing with Vladimir Guerrero. And now his, yeah. his kid is doing that. Andrew Jones's kid, probably going to be the number one pick this year. So yeah. uh, a, whole, a whole lot in that, but you, you know, so you're, you're rehabbing from surgery, arms in a sling, Reds release you, you're a free agent. What is being a free agent? Like you can't throw for teams. You, the last time they saw you, your elbow was a mess. Is, did you know you were going to get a job? You know what? I did because of Chris Carpenter. Chris Carpenter signed a one-year deal with the Toronto Blue Jays, or sorry, the Cardinals from the Blue Jays, a one-year deal with a team option. And the way it was structured and my agent, Craig, was like, you know, looking at this, I feel like this could really like be something we can model your contract after. Like have the surgery, get paid the league minimum, and then the team gets the option. So if you're healthy and you're coming back and you have a good rehab and um, I really wanted to go play for the Cubs. I, I made my first major league start at Wrigley. And I remember walking out and going out there and I just remember being like, man, I want to play here one day. Like I just, I want to play for the Cubs. Um, I had an opportunity. Boston was another team, which coincidentally ended up winning in 04, but who knows what would have happened. Um, so I, I kind of said, all right, like I'm going to make this happen. And, Jim Hendry was a fan. Gary Hughes was a fan. Um, like Jim wanted me there, but the, you know, they had Wood, Pryor, Zambrano, Clement, and then they went and signed Maddox. And the day they signed Maddox, like the next day I pick up the phone, I'm, I called Jim and I'm like, what the heck dude? Like, and he goes, are you pitching next year? And I'm like, no, he goes, exactly. Like, you know, you want to sign fine. I'll sign you. And he signed me the next day. He was like, and he did the contract. Um, and it was great. And my only, my only thing is that I wanted out of, out of all of it was I just don't, I want to rehab with the team. I don't want to go down to extended spring training and just be in Arizona and not have any relationships with any of these guys. Like at that point, I've been playing the big leagues for five years. Like, you know, I, I wanted to be around them so that when I came back, they, you know, they knew who I was. So it, it worked out well that they let me do that. And, um, and then when the team would go on the road, I would go to Lansing. And then, or, you know, or wherever they were, Cedar Rapids or Fort Wayne, Indiana or West Michigan, I'd go to those ballparks um, while, while the team was on the road. So I didn't travel with the club. I just did that and then did all my rehab and 
actually made so many starts for Lansing that Jim Hendry had a fake press release that I made the Midwest League All-Star team. So it was, it was pretty funny. <laughs> a full-on legit, I'm like, is this for real? Can I go? <laughs> Am I allowed to go? You know, do I have to buy a spread? If I go like, so you're, you're making those rehab starts. You've, you've been a big league all-star. You're back in low A doing, yeah. doing these rehab starts. What are like, what's the intensity for you around those games? I was having a blast. You know what? They were, I, I had so much fun with it. Like I brought my dogs You know, my dogs were coming in the clubhouse. I, you know, like I was buying a spread like every night, like whether it was like, you know, I was getting Outback Steakhouse or whether I was just getting cheeseburgers. Like I was just having a blast kind of like being around the guys and like, it's kind of invigorating sometimes. Like, you know, the big leagues are a lot, you know, like you got to perform first and foremost, your job is very, very important. But then you have like media requests and family requests. And it's like, you got a lot, you know, going back to ABLE like that was like, it was almost like there was no pressure. And I was just focused on just trying to, do my routine to get healthy so that I can get back to help the team and rehab was just going great. I kind of got to push it back because there wasn't a rush. So like I waited an extra three weeks to even start throwing from when the normal throwing programs began just to make sure it was nice and strong. And then it was like two innings, two innings, three innings, four innings, you know, like sometimes they hit me a little bit and sometimes, you know, and I really worked on my command. And, and meanwhile, while that would happen, I'd go back to Chicago when the team was home and I'd sit next to Greg and I'd learn some more. And then I'd take that to my rehab assignments and, you know, being around Larry Rothschild and learning from Larry. So it was just a really great way to rehab, you know, because it was like, I was still on a, you know, a team and traveling around. I'm going, like I said, I'm going to Cedar Rapids. I got Bach and Bob Davidson's umpiring behind me. Just, he called the Bach on me in a rehab assignment, you know, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, playing the Colonels. And I'm like, seriously, dude, like you're seriously going to call a balk on me right now. Big league pedigree doesn't get you anything in the Midwest league, buddy. No, especially with Bob Davidson, no chance. He couldn't wait to call a balk. What do you, what do you pick up from a guy like, like Maddox? Like you say you're taking stuff to your rehab starts. What is he telling you that you're in- incorporating into your game? Yeah. Just repeating successful deliveries, you know, really focusing like Greg learned a lot of stuff from Harvey Dorfman and Harvey Dorfman wrote the mental game of baseball and the ABCs of pitching. Harvey was like instrumental early on in my career of helping me as a, as a young player. Um, Cause he was with the Marlins, but just like kind of reiterating a lot of those things that Harvey kind of preached and, you know, Greg would be like, if you throw a pitch, a fastball down and away, it's good. Throw another one, throw another one, throw another one. You know? um, being able to do that, changing speeds, um, and, and just kind of like, you know, how to kind of just worry about all that matters is, is that I select the pitch I want to throw and then I, I select the location where I want to throw it and then I got to execute it. And other than that, the only thing I'm responsible for after that is fielding my position. That's it. So like if I do all those things and a play doesn't get made, it doesn't matter. If I do all those things, and the umpire calls it a ball. It doesn't matter. It, it really didn't. And before that, I always thought it mattered. You know, oh man, well, that's a strike. It wasn't, doesn't matter. You know, I still struggled with that throughout my career, but you know, or like a play gets made behind, doesn't get made behind you and you get frustrated. Why? It doesn't matter. The next pitch is the only thing that matters. The guy hits a three run homer. Cool. That's on channel 272. It's on the history channel. Like, let's go. Like it's right now is all that matters. And Greg was really, really good at talking about that and, and, you know, managing games of like, you know, what was important and, you know, 
things to pay attention to and things to, to look at for hitters and a little bit harder to do during a rehab assignment because you don't really know those guys. They don't have a lot of um, consistency in their game plans. That's why they're in a ball um, actually easier to do at the big league level, but um, you know, just try to always implement those things. Talking about the mental game of baseball. When you come back, you're in the bullpen for the, for really the first yeah. time in your career as a mainstay as a starter, you get to set the tone. You get to have your, whatever it is, your game day routine is you get to prepare in any way. You have all this time up to the seven o'clock start to, to get yourself ready in the pay, completely different story in the bullpen. You might be, you're, you might be coming out into the fire. Was that a difficult transition for you to learn a new routine or find a way to incorporate getting ready? Or is that just like, I'm a pitcher. I'll pitch whenever. Yeah, it was, it was a little bit difficult. I think a little bit difficult from the physical standpoint, like, especially I'd been a starter, started my pretty much my whole life minus a couple of appearances. And then, um, you know, coming back from an injury, am I going to be all right with this? So there was a little bit of a plan in place. Like if I pitched, I didn't pitch again for a few more days. Um, but I was feeling good physically. I was feeling good. And I got really lucky. Like I had Kent Merker, Mike Remlinger down there, two pros, you know, guys that just like, yeah, Hey, do this, you know, do this, like make sure you're doing LaTroy Hawkins. Like, just kind of watch those guys and, and making sure that you're just always prepared, especially in my situation was, you know, if a starter got rocked, I might be the guy to go in. So I always kind of had to be ready early. Um, and then just, you know, kind of going through that, how to stay loose, how to stay uh, focused, you know, cause here I was so used to having four days off where I could just like, you know, do some hot foots and, you know, mess around with some bubble gum on top of some guys hats. Now all of a sudden I got to be ready like every single day. And, and which is also great in itself. You know, you go from only contributing once every fifth day, you know, in a sense to like, I can help the team win every day. And so, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, a different transition, but a, a cool experience. The next year you, you go out in the rotation first, and then you end up taking over the closer job from LaTroy Hawkins, twins legend, LaTroy Hawkins. Just want to shout that out. Um, so as the guy in the back end, it's different than, you know, starter gets blown up. You might, you might be in soon. You've got, you got the status, you've got the cat, you're the capital C closer. You got the pressure, but more than anyone else in the pen, you've got an idea of when you're going to throw during the ninth, maybe the eighth, maybe extra innings, but like, you, you know, the situation, what is the Ryan Dempster? I'm not throwing until the ninth inning routine. Like how do you spend a game and then start to like, kind of gash yourself up as things get going? Yeah, I would, I would like come out to the dugout, watch a few innings, and then I would go into the clubhouse and get like kind of ready to go. Like, you know, the, the starting about the second, you know, third inning and then go out to the bullpen, like fourth, fifth inning. Um, once I, once I got in that groove where I knew that was my role. And then it was just like, I just had little routines, throw against the wall in the seventh inning, throw with an outfielder in the eighth. Um, and then just be ready. Um, you know, and it's different too, right? When you're a starting pitcher, you got time to get your fastball command going. You got time to start spinning your breaking ball and your change up or multiple break balls. You have them when you're a reliever and when you're a closer, you know, first and foremost, make sure you get one pitch at least locked in and then two, and don't worry about the other one. If you get one of the other two pitches locked in, then that's all that matters. Cause it's really what you're going to use is probably just two pitches. So that was like the, the transition, but it, it just went really well. And like, I enjoyed the, I was feeling so good physically and coming off of it that I enjoyed, like, I wanted to throw more. Like I went, we went on a 10 day road trip. I threw in 
I want to say I had six saves and threw in seven of the 10 games and I got warm in two other ones, only one game. I didn't actually get up. And like that last game in San Francisco, you could have told me what, what number on the date of the, that was on the coin. And I was going to hit that number. It was just like, I never had that big good command in my life. 94 and 96, just boom, right there. Slider tight, boom, right there. Just every pitch, nowhere it was going. Um, yeah. And that, the more it was like that, like, I, as long as I threw within every three days, I felt sharp. I felt crisp. Um, and I loved it. I had a great year. I mean, 33 of 35 and the two blown saves, I got the win. So like literally closing the, as a closer that entire year, I never snapped, I never sniffed the loss. I never, was never left on the field by another team. And I never lost the game that I came in for us. So it was, it was crazy. It was, it was unlike anything I can, and the adrenaline rush was awesome. You know, when you're at Wrigley, 40,000 fans are going bananas. And you're just like, getting that last out. It was just, it was intense. It was cool. Was there any part of you that just wanted to stay a back end of the bullpen guy? Just no. want to stay closer. Uh, I always miss starting. I was, I started since I was 16 years old. Like I started in the minor leagues. I started, I just, I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the responsibility of every fifth day, um, giving a bullpen a break and, and being a guy that could go deep in the ball game and pitch some innings. So it was, it was, uh, you know, it was something I always missed. Um, and then, you know, like 2006, I had a, actually got off to a good start. I had a big scoreless streak going and then I just got in a rut and then we started going bad. And then I was like pitching once every fifth day and I wasn't as sharp. I got about through some depression and I just like, you know, gained weight. I just, I wasn't good. It was a, it was a terrible year. Um, you know, anytime you're one and nine as a closer, I think that's what it was or two and nine or something like that it was not good. Um, that, that, that was tough. And then, you know, it was nice to redeem myself in 2007 and come back and, and have a good year minus a little bit of an injury. Well, walk me through then you, you go back to the rotation, but then you, you develop, I guess the, the famous glove waggle yeah. in your delivery. What, what went into that? Why, why try that? Uh, I was throwing a bullpen going into the 2008 season, uh, at, uh, at the Cubs minor league facility. And then Tyler Coleman was standing in and he was just tracking pitches. It was like, you know, a week before spring training. And he's like, and so, you know, if you take a baseball, I'll give you a little bit of a demo here. So my hand, you know, I can't just, it was hard for me to just reach in the glove and grab a split. Right. So the, I started throwing a split the year before, uh, when I, when I went back uh, in 2005, Fergie Jenkins. So I struggled my whole life with changeups. I tried everything. I tried like the Trevor Hoffman. I tried circle changeups. You know, I tried, you know, wide grip. I tried everything. It just didn't work. And so I just walk into back to throw a bullpen. I go, Fergie, how'd you throw your changeup? And he's like, oh, I just kind of like split my fingers across and I just put my finger up like that. So, you know, you had had it like that. And it was kind of like a changeup like that. And then on the side, well, I go out and throw my first one in my bullpen. That thing just goes. Whoom. And Larry Rothschild's like, what was that? I go, a split I just got from first. He goes, throw it again. Whoom, straight down. So then I was like, all right, I'm going to stick with this. But as a closer and as a starter, I was fine. I made a couple starts. But then as a closer, I always pitched out of the set. So for three years, I'm pitching out of the set, out of the stretch. I'm never out of a windup. So now I'm back going back in the rotation. And as I go into my glove, and I'd put it, if I had a glove, if I switched out, if we watch my right wrist, if I would switch out of my split, my wrist would move. So it was either a fastball or slider and you could eliminate a pitch. 
Pat was like, I could tell every time you were throwing something other than a split because you would, because I, because I'd have to preload it, put it in. And then if I stayed there, he's like, it's a split. If, and then if I moved anything, it was a fastball or a slider. So that night I went home and Kevin Millar was living out at a place I was renting, but he was living out in Mesa, Arizona and Millar's and I tell him what's up. And he goes, dude, why don't you just kind of like wiggle your glove a little bit like Eric Bedard did because he was having a similar issue. And so I was like, Oh, okay, cool. And so I just kind of started really like slowly doing it. And then, so what I would do is, so if I had it here and then I could just wiggle my glove and he wouldn't be able to see that I switched out. And then it just kind of became, you know, a little bit like I had Tourette's of the glove, but, uh, and then I just like, you know, I'd have like a little bit of a timing mechanism to it too. And then hitters would be like, Oh dude, that's, that's, that's stuff. That's messing me up. And I'm like, cool. It's more meant for protection for me, but if it's messing you up, awesome bonus points to that too. Um, and then just kind of stuck. And the next thing you know, you're walking down the street, pulling your kid in a wagon and a couple kids are at a baseball field going i'm ryan dempster and they're wiggling their gloves and i'm like hey you hear that dude that's your dad they're talking about that's sick uh yeah. so the the last time the last two seasons you had been a starter a full-time starter you carried an era over six and you blew out your elbow the what had this guy learned what was this new this 2008 starter to where you were you were able to make an all-star team and get cy young votes and have a sub three um, well, I'd always worked out hard, but I worked out crazy hard that off season to get myself ready for the challenge. And then just mentally, you know, as physically as good a shape as I was in mentally, I just think understanding the, the power of just one pitch at a time, you know, that's it. Just this pitch right here, having a scouting report, reading scouting reports, reading swings, you know, spending time in the video room and truly understanding what that meant to go through it. Um, and putting the work in there and retaining that kind of what you would see in there and implementing in the game. Um, my arm felt really fresh and, you know, I had a new elbow with not a lot of miles on it cause I was closing. So, you know, if you think about it three years in a row, 50607, really 0405, was the equivalent of almost like one of my seasons. So it was like, I really had a fresh arm and I, so I physically, I felt strong. And then it was just like a younger me, would have thrown a fastball to somebody and they swing a miss. And then I probably would have went to a slider for a ball or I would have went to a fastball somewhere else. All of a sudden it was like fastball down away, strike another one, fastball down away, strike two, fastball down away, paint, strike three, see ya. Now, not only did I just get you out on one pitch, it's three pitches, but I got you out on one pitch. I got you for your second time and your third time. I had, I just learned so much about, the art of just, just that, all that was really mattering was just throwing one pitch at a time. Well, keeping that, you know, kind of taken in that when you only had one inning to throw in the all-star game, do you, how vividly do you remember that? One of the greater all-star innings of all time. Thanks. Yeah. I was, uh, I was really hoping ugly. I got a run in there because I had an outside shot shot at the, uh, at the MVP maybe, I don't know. Um, but so I warmed Story behind this is kind of, a, I'll, I'll try to condense this, but 2000, I make the all-star team. I don't pitch, right? My whole family flies down. My mom, dad, my brothers, my best friend and his wife and my uncle all fly down from Vancouver to Atlanta and I don't pitch. And I always thank Bobby. I always thank Bobby Cox for this. He, he waited at the tunnel, you know, we lost the game to the American league and he waited down the tunnel 
for me to walk all the way in from the bullpen in Atlanta and said, I'm sorry, you never got in the game. I know you got your whole family here, but you'll be back. And so now I go to the all-star game in 2008. I threw Sunday against Tim Linscombe um, in, in Wrigley and threw 117 or something, 114 pitches. So now Clint Hurdle is telling me I cannot pitch in the all-star game. You're not pitching. And I was not happy. Um, I said, Clint, listen, I got up this morning and I just ran seven miles in Central Park. My arm feels good. My entire family who flew all the way to the All-Star game in 2000 is all here again. The same people all came. The same group of people came. Everybody's here and you're telling me I'm not going to pitch again. And he's like, no, I can't pitch you. A lot louder if you know Clint. It was like, I'm not. No, no. You know, he's just like, so that's that's on Monday. On Tuesday, the day of the game, I go back in his office. And I asked after the game too. And when I left after the game, I was like, okay, Clint, I'll be ready to pitch tomorrow. Like I'm just like throwing it out so many times. That's after the derby then. What's that? You're saying after after the derby derby on Monday? Yeah. So then, so then I'm like sitting there and, and, uh, on Tuesday and, and, Lou comes over, you know, your son, you threw a lot of pitches on, on Sunday. And I just, you know, and I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, and Clint's like, no, you're not pitching. So I'm just like super bummed out. And I just, you know, I kind of went into, as Derek Bell called it, operation shutdown mode. Like I just, I wasn't going to do anything. Like I didn't even really, I played a little bit of catch and that was it. And so now I'm sitting on the bullpen and game's going along. We're winning three to two. Billy Wagner goes in the game. JD Drew hits a home run to make it three three, and I'm going. To, maybe it was two to two. Or no, it's three to three. I'm going to the bathroom, taking a leak, and bang, bang, bang on the door. Hey, if it's still tied, you're in. And I'm like, what in the pardon my French, but is going on here? You know, I'm not supposed to pitch. You're telling me that I'm not pitching. It is not happening. And now you're going to send me out in the bottom of the ninth inning at Yankee Stadium in front of 55,000 fans after Mariano Rivera just pitched. You asshole. Like, that's what I thought. Like, I was like, so I'm trying to like, I'm like getting my cleats tied up. I'm like, I'm like frazzled. You know, it's like when you woke up late for school and you're trying to find all your stuff before you go, you know, you're like, where's my bag? And I'm like, I'm Soto's now down, gone from starting the game. He's down there to warm guys up and I'm throwing to him and I'm so bad warming up. Gio and I talk about this all the time. He, he laughs so hard at this. He came out from warming me up, like stop, caught the ball or picked it out of the dirt and walked up to the mound. He's like, dude, are you okay? Uh, you know, like, like you gotta remember, like I'm a dude who's like, I've been like carving, like I'm 10 and 0 at home. I'm like, I know where every pitch is going and I cannot throw a strike. And he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no, I don't know what is going on. dude. I cannot. I'm throwing sliders that are 55 feet. I'm bouncing balls off the brick wall behind them. I'm so bad warming up. My only thought that when I, when they opened up the doors at center field to walk out of the bullpen, this is a true story. I walked out of that bullpen. I thought, man, I just lost the all-star game. <laughs> Like that went through my head, like the option of, and I get out there and I'm like, all right, I'm kind of like the run out, I think really helped because it just calmed me down. I just deep breath the whole way out. Just like deep breath in, deep breath out. First warm up pitch, Russell Martin, like, pow, and I'm like, oh, and now I'm where it's going. And then I strike out the side. I'm psyched. I just black out. What just happened, dude? Like, that was easy. Like, it was just crazy. It was Dean Kinsler, Deanna Navarro and JD Drew. And it was just like, 
yeah, it was like from, you know, from not pitching to, to that happening. It's the first time since 1955 that that had happened where the ninth inning or later, somebody had struck out the side. I was like, it was just like the coolest, most surreal moment ever. I got this incredible picture that somebody forwarded. I'd never seen it until this year. And it was, it was me facing Navarro and it was just like, just people everywhere. And it was just like, I'm, I'm cocked all the way back. It was just like so cool and just made me smile. So I'm like, in the last, the last All-Star game in Old Yankee Stadium, too. Yeah, yeah. I liked Old Yankee Stadium more. New Yankee Stadium's too commercial. Yeah, and they also decided to to keep the little the little baby porch for... Yeah, all the guys who can fly out to Reich and say they had a homer. <laughs> um, so, that in mind, you, again, turn in a great 2008. You're an All-Star who's actually pitched in an All-Star game. You... you reached big league stability you've also reached financial stability you know you've hit arbitration obviously you've hit free agency you've been able you know the what guys dream of when they sign that first contract going going to the big leagues staying getting to six uh chris pronger recently had a a thread about how far 30 million dollars actually goes for a pro hockey player and he goes into like all the different things that we as fans wouldn't think of that you know body maintenance and travel and family stuff and stuff like that once you hit that level of financial stability, how much does it, how much does more financial security help you in terms of your career? Not just like being able to buy a nice house, have a nice car, whatever. Like how much does getting more financially set help you as an athlete help make your life easier? Well, I think it's, I think it's twofold. I think it makes your life easier, but it also makes your life harder, right? Everybody's going to need, need help somewhere. Can you help me out here? Can you help me out here? Can you help me out here? Um, and then, you know, just, but like, as far as being able to afford those things, yeah. You know, being able to have a personal trainer, you know, every day of the week, you know, that's not, that's not cheap. Be, being able to have somebody who can take care of your body and help you get through those things, um, you know, equipment and different training things and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I think, I think it definitely helps, you know, and I think that's why you can see you know, guys, um, that make a ton of money, be able to stay and play for as long as they do, because they can afford those things. So definitely, definitely helped and and can help in a big way. Um, you know, money can ease a lot of stress, can bring some stresses for sure, but it can ease a lot of stress as well. And, um, it can, it can help some, it can help extend your career. I mean, look at some of the guys that are, you know, in the NFL playing until they're in their forties and different things. Like I'm sure they got a lot of people taking care of a lot of things that, that help them go out there every, you know, every Sunday and play football and just like a starting pitcher every fifth day, you know, whether that's a, you know, you have a chiropractor or an acupuncturist or a body maintenance person or whatever it is, all those different things can definitely like, yeah, money can help that stuff. Did you ever buy a ridiculous piece of recovery equipment? I remember always seeing Terrell Owens sleeping like that, that chamber. Okay. The chamber is what I was going to ask about. Yeah. Hyperbaric chamber. It worked. I, uh, I, I pulled my lap in 2007 and I I'd sleep in that thing. I was in there all the time and people were like, you're going to be out like at least two months. And I think it was like six weeks later I was back. So, um, I use it for a lot of different recovery stuff and it, it definitely, definitely helped. So do you still have it? Uh, no, I ended up giving it to my son's godmother. Who's a, she does body work and chiropractic work for the red wings and guys in the NHL. So she uses it. It's still being used by professional athletes. How about that? Well, second life for the chamber. Right. Uh, well, speaking of money, you hit free agency again after, you know, you traded to the Rangers, the deadline, you hit free agency again. 
what is you've been a free agent with your arm in a sling. Now yeah. you're a free agent who's, you know, coming out a few years ago, you'd had an all-star season, um, still a productive big league pitcher. What's, what's being a free agent like when you're a desired commodity? Yeah, it was cool. It was, it was a lot of fun, you know, getting to do that in 2008, but in 2008, all I wanted to do was come back and play for the Cubs. So it was like, I wasn't really interested. Now it was like, you know, Texas was going in their direction. They just wanted me for the the rental, which was totally cool. I mean, incredible place to play. John Daniels was amazing. Ron Washington was fabulous. Mike Maddox was a great pitch. I, I loved my time there, but it wasn't, I don't think really an option for them to bring me back. Um, but just, yeah, having different teams reach out and like, you know, wanting you. And then like to hear the Boston Red Sox were interested was really, really cool. And I know I, I'm guessing, and I kind of heard, you know, I know that Theo put a good word in for me with Ben Charrington. And um, I just really liked what they were doing there, you know, with the pieces that they already had coming off of just like, you know, the Bobby V experience, like where they, everything went wrong, you know, on every angle. I'm like, they have a good team with a bunch of good guys and they sign this guy and they're signing this guy and they're signing this guy. I'm like, this could really, really work. So um, there was, a, there was a couple of teams that had, you know, maybe a little bit more money or a little another year on the table, but um, a chance to go play for the Red Sox um, with those guys. I was, I was just fired up. And, and then, you know, we go there and, you know, all these cute little teams that try to come in and beat us all over the place. They just couldn't do it, but you know, that's okay. Where are Boston and Chicago similar and where they're, where they're different? Cause they kind of get, they're in that swath of super old franchises with really old ballparks and really crotchety tortured fan bases in a lot of ways. Like where did that feel kind of like the same old hat for you playing for a storied franchise or did they have their differences? No, they had their differences. Like a lot of the things you just mentioned, like ballpark wise and like the hum around the ballpark and the feelings and all that kind of stuff. And the diehards, it was a lot of similarities, but you know, and, and I think maybe there might've been more simulators before the Red Sox won and broke the curse. And then afterwards it was like, you know, there in Chicago, there was always that angst, right. That, that fear that the bad was going to happen in Boston. They were just letting you know that like that bad better not happen. Otherwise we don't want you playing here. Like, we won now. Now there's no more excuses. You better go out there. You better hustle. You know, and I always felt like, you know, I, I love Cub fans to death. So um, I feel like there's a little bit more fun to be had at Wrigley Field. You know, like we're going to get drunk in the bleachers and make snake cups. But in Boston, it's like they're in on every pitch. Like we're not taking a pitch off. We're paying attention to everything going on here. So I felt maybe that's where like the two differences were a little bit. Um but two incredible places to play and, and unique to themselves. Everyone's like, which one's better? I'm like, eh, uh, like, cool. What's, what's better? Like, you know, the Sistine Chapel or the Mona Lisa, like, you know, like they're both incredible pieces of art. Like you can't compare them. They're, they're standing their own class. Coming with the Red Sox comes a famous, famous rivalry, which you, you know, you asserted yourself in, in that first year. The, the question I want to ask you about that whole situation, what do, what do pro baseball players owe each other? You're all fighting to make it in pro ball, make money, win, that whole thing. What lines don't get crossed in terms of competitive edge or in conduct? What lines shouldn't be crossed? I don't know. Um, don't cross the respect line. You know, guys have always been trying to get a competitive edge forever. You know, whether it's, all the way back to Ty Cobb sharpening his spikes so he could come in high on a double play. You know, there's there's cork bats and sandpaper and Vaseline. There's sign stealing before sign stealing was ever a thing. There's, you know, 
there was different ways they handled it. Um, guy on your team gets hit and then somebody's going to get hit, you know, like, well, it wasn't on purpose. Cool. Guess what? If I make sure that I take care of my teammates, so he knows he's protected, then maybe next time when you think about throwing a fastball in, you might not throw it all the way inside and hit them. You know, like it wasn't about hurting somebody, you know, I, I don't think I ever threw a pitch in the big leagues and was like, I want to hurt this guy right here ever. And I threw it guys on purpose. You know, it was just like, sometimes you just had to do it. Like I'd hit Moises Alou because Mark Pryor kept throwing at Jason LaRue. So I'm like, I got to hit Moises Alou. Like this guy's scary, you know, but I got to do it. So I had to hit him right in the quad because anywhere else would have been inappropriate. And I did. And he went down to first base. There's all these rules. So I think like, you know, that's always been going on. I think just like res- respect, right? Like dis- disrespectfulness is, is sometimes I think where guys really get upset, you know? I think that's that's where that happens. Like when, you know, you hit somebody in the head. Hey, dude, you okay? Man, I feel bad about that. You know, you all of a sudden like hit somebody and you drill somebody and you're like, give me the ball. And like, you don't, then now guys are going to get pissed off. So I think like, and, and there's other examples and other things, right? Like, listen, I know tons of guys who took PEDs um, and they're great guys. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, that was their choice. They, they chose to do that. Whoever, whoever did it made those choices, you know, and I'm not perfect. Trust me. Like I've probably done my own things and I know I have, but like on the field, I think that's probably the biggest thing all guys want is respect, play the game hard, play it the right way and and do right by each other. We're all in a fraternity out there. We're competing. So like sometimes somebody might get hit with a baseball. Somebody might get taken out at second base, you know, but it's, it's about trying to go out there and win the game because at the end of the day, you know, there's one team left when it's all said and done. Right. And what do you got to do to win that game? And, and that's the ultimate goal. You know, like, oh, I didn't want to take the guy to second base. Cool. I'm on my couch in October because I didn't win that game. You did my transition for me perfectly because that 2013 Red Sox team, you, you guys are that team. Is there, is there any one thing that you can put on, you know, put on that and say a world series team has this, that other teams I was on do not, or is it, we were just a good team. Well, we were, we were a good team. We, we had moxie, man. And we had, and we had like togetherness, like early on, really, really early on, like really joined. And obviously a big part of that was, was the bombing and what it, what it did to the city and united the city after they caught that guy um, on that Friday night. Um, But like, you know, after they caught the guy in in, uh, Watertown on Friday night, our game was canceled Friday. And then, we played Saturday and we walked into the field and you, you, you couldn't move in the clubhouse. It was head of the FBI, head of secret service, governor, mayor, 50 police officers, special forces, Navy SEALs, you name it, EMTs, firefighters, everybody. And Johnny Gomes just was like, Ryan, look, we can't lose, dude. Look at, it's impossible. We look what we got behind us. And we really kind of like absorbed that energy. And then the fans just gave it to us the whole rest of the year. It was just like in all these moments and different guys doing it. Like, cause if you look at our team, it wasn't like we, we went through four, we were on our fourth closer by the time Koji was closing. Like we, we had, we missed Buckholtz who was like going to win the Cy Young to, and then we missed him for months. David Ross was out with a concussion. Like, we just constantly overcame adversity. And I think that was our mantra because that's what the city had to do. Uh, they turned tragedy into triumph it was 
it was amazing thing to be a part of, like to be a part of something that was incredibly tragic and terrible and, and broke our hearts and, and crushed families and people lost people in their lives that we'll never ever see again and just turned it into something special and uniting and, um, and it was, it was just really surreal to be a part of it all. And I, so I always say I played one year in Boston and I feel like I played 10, half my career there. It's, it's crazy. It's just the ties to it all. And those guys, and we still have a, a group text message that gets thrown around every once in a while with like a bunch of guys. So it's, it was, it was pretty special to be a part of something like that. And in an incredible way to go out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the poppy speech gets, it makes the rounds on Twitter every now and then and it, yeah. it just makes me want to run through a brick wall. Yeah. Um, so with that, you know, good way to go out. When did you first think about not pitching in 2014? Um, you know, probably a little bit during the season, the, the, the thought had crossed my mind. I, I was going through some neck issues, some really bad, I've, you know, all kinds of issues in my neck. You throw that many pitches over 20 seasons of professional baseball, it's going to take its toll on you. And it was getting harder and harder, um, physically and on a, you know, a personal level, I was going through a divorce and it was like, I have three kids and, you know, I'm in a different city and it's just like, I'm doing all this. And like, you know, as the stars started to line and I saw some doctors after the season and saw a specialist about it. He's like, yeah, you got some, some bulging discs here and some compression here and some scar tissue here. And it was like, uh, I want my last pitch that I ever threw in the big leagues to be a strikeout to end game one of the world series and um, go spend time with my kids. So um, was able to do that. And you know, not a lot of people get to go on their own terms, you know, like I was still, a, I, you know, serviceable major league pitcher at the time but you know it would have been a lot physically and mentally to continue to do that i just couldn't see it going out any better than it did with that being said uh if you you know you wrap up your career world series champion all-star things seem to work out pretty well if you could go back and give yourself a pep talk at age 18 that that guy who that guy who turned down the first offer from the rangers and then put pen to paper what would you tell that kid believe in yourself more you know like really believe in yourself every day. It's funny. I like, I told myself that, Oh, I'm going to be this major league baseball player. And then when the actual reality started to happen, you know, I maybe just didn't trust that I was as good as I was. Um, you know, and I, I think if I, it wasn't until I really started to trust my stuff and realize that it, it was as good as it was that, you know, my career really started to take off. Um, so yeah, just like, and enjoy it a little bit more, you know, like have some fun. I had fun on, on the four days I wasn't pitching. Believe me, everybody who's ever played with me will be like, yeah, he had a ton of fun. But the days that I was pitching, I, you know, enjoy it just a little bit more instead of making it so stressful. Like, you know, we're not out there curing cancer, right? We're playing baseball and, uh, and we're entertaining people still compete, but just have a little bit of fun. Got a quick rapid fire for you. And then I'll let you get yeah. out of here. All right. F- favorite minor league ballpark. Whoa. Favorite minor league ballpark, favorite minor league ballpark. Uh, you know what? I'm going to say that I'm going to say King County Cougars. Yeah. Good one. First. For, I mean, I showed up there in a ball and 14,000 fans that first game I showed up, I came from college park in Charleston, with 600, some stray cats. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> favorite big league ballpark. Wrigley field. Do you have a least favorite big league ballpark? The old veteran stadium. It's Philly, right? Yeah, I mean, Philly fans boo Santa Claus and throw batteries at people. 
They were trying to pour beer on me, but they had these little things over top of the bullpen. So Eagles fans booed Michael Irvin when he was down on the ground, not moving in a Cowboys Eagles games. Never forget that. Uh, best hitter you ever faced. Uh, Barry Bonds. What do you do against like that? How that guy throw it right down the middle and let him line out to the center fielder. So if you throw it inside, he hits it in the cove. You throw it away, he hits it out left. If you throw it right down the middle, he doesn't know what to do, and he just lines out to somebody. You played most of your career in the NL. Best pitcher you ever faced? Randy Johnson. He was throwing Tic Tacs. That's what they look like. Like If, if you were to go play a baseball game tomorrow and from 60 feet, 6 inches away, somebody was throwing Tic Tacs at 100 miles an hour, that's what it looked like. I dreamed of being a major league baseball player for my entire life. And you couldn't, there's no amount of money in the world. You could pay me to, to step in the box against that. Guy. And he was yelling at me the whole time too. Just like, bunt, you're going to bunt. I'm trying to bunt, you know? And I'm like, Oh boy, I don't want to look at you. You're scary looking. You're going to, you're going to throw it at me. You know? Yeah. But he's a gentle giant. Best Greg Maddox story. That is not about baseball. Uh, what? Okay. That, that sort of you can tell uh, that, that I won't have to bleep a bunch of stuff out. Sort of involves baseball. It, it involves an aspect of baseball, but it's really great. So his first chance at 300 was at home against the New York Mets. Do you know who blew that save? Oh, no. This guy. So we're getting on the plane and we're getting ready to fly out to the West Coast. And uh, Greg says... And I'm feeling like terrible. And Greg says, I'm pissed at you. And I was like, dude, I feel so bad, man. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. And he goes, oh, I don't care about the win. No. The only reason I'm mad is because I had tea times at the Olympic club in San Francisco country club. And now my whole family has to come there and watch me win 300 there. And you messed that up. So I messed up his tea times in San Francisco. He yelled that against me for a little bit. He was pissed at that one. God, God, I love that guy. Yeah, he's awesome. Best food city in the big leagues, New York. Yeah, I, I need I need to keep a running tally of of who's winning because I think it's either New York or Chicago almost every single time. Yeah, I mean I should. Yeah, for me I just know too many. Like I found so many hidden gems in New York. I love New York for three days. We talked before we started recording. You are a big sports card guy. What is like your what's your like top three in your personal collection? Uh, in my personal collection, the Ken Griffey Jr., I got a couple Gem Mint 10 rookies of the upper deck version. Um, uh, Roberto Clemente rookie. Um, not graded yet, but we'll get there. Uh, Mario Lemieux rookie. Um, and then I got some really nice Ted Williams, like 53 and 54, 1953, that are in really, really great shape. That is That is sick. You struck out 2,075 hitters in your career. How many of those strikeouts would you give up for one home run? <laughs> 75 of them at least. I'd like to say above 2,000. Last question. Everyone gets this one. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? Yeah, uh, from Akron, Ohio to Portland, Maine, and our bus driver, Kenny. So it's a 16-hour bus ride. And Kenny is a great guy, but he always, he always is. You know, I always love Kenny because he'd do this thing where bus drivers, uh, they always uh, eat at McDonald's for free. So if they're driving a tour bus or they're driving a coach bus, they get free food, right? But he'd always, and he'd do this. So we'd go to places and we'd pull into McDonald's and then he'd order and he'd always wait for them to tell him the total. So it's like, oh, sir, that's $7.87. And then he'd always be like, I'm the bus driver. <laughs> like he couldn't tell them that before, you know, he's like, he wanted to just like make them, it was just always fun. Anyways, 
Kenny, I, I remember at one point I snapped. I just like stood up and I just hit the bathroom door. Like, cause we drove through the night and I was like, congratulations. You hit them all. You hit every pothole in the whole road. You hit every one of them. It was the worst 16 hours on a bus trying to, trying to sleep and just like, and then he hit this on the side. I'm like, somebody keep him awake. Somebody else drive. That was the worst, the worst bus ride, bus ride ever. Ryan Dempster, that's all I've got for you. Thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Hey, thanks for having me, Carl. That's it for our conversation with Ryan Dempster. Huge thanks to him for stopping by the show, talking about his career. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and make sure to go check out BaseballAmerica.com and the BA podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. We'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.